of George Knapp listening to that UFO podcast and having one hell of a good time. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and I am joined today by a returning guest on his own this time, flying solo. Among many things, he is a biochemist, an author and was Deputy Administrator of Bigelow Aerospace uh, Advanced Space Studies where he led the day-to-day operations in executing the OSAP contract uh, back in Skinwalker Ranch with the DIA. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Colm Kelleher. Colm, welcome back. Great to see you, Andy. Do you know what? You're one of those guests where it's very hard to nail down a good bio for you because you've got so many things attached to your name. It's like, what do you pick and what do you not? So you never want to upset anyone, do you? No, I mean, uh, well, my bio is pretty sort of broad, but I guess the most pertinent things uh, about about the bio would be uh, spending eight years as a uh, team leader and project manager on Skinwalker Ranch, reporting to Robert Bigelow. And that was between 1996, 2004. And then um, between 2008 and 2010, I was also reporting to Robert Bigelow under the auspices of Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies, executing the so-called OSAP program, the Advanced Aerospace Weapons Systems Application Program. Um, But my background is biochemistry, uh, molecular biology. I've done a lot of, um, I've done a lot of research on the bench. So I know how to set up uh, controlled experiments. And that's one of the things about this field that uh, we don't have the luxury in many cases of setting up controlled repeated experiments. And you've been on the podcast before, like I mentioned, Uh, so I would encourage folks who haven't listened to those uh, with George to go back and check them out. Um, We're going to discuss a few different areas. We're going to touch on the book that I spoke to George about that you co-authored with James Lekatsky and George Knapp, Initial Revelations. It's now been a few months since release, and I wonder how for you at this point has the reception and reaction been? I think in general, you know, going across, well, UFO, UFO world, as George likes to call it, um, obviously there's a sort of a tremendous amount of uh, um, disparate reactions, some of it hostile, some of it, you know, uh, some of it uh, actually really positive. Also got a lot of positive reviews from people who are in the sort of the more academic settings. Uh, regarding uh, the the initial revelations book, because you know realistically, um, the UFO topic, um, you know, is traditionally a nuts and bolts topic, and this book was fundamentally a nuts and bolts book about a nuts and bolts topic, and we did not spend much time in this particular book uh, on the various aspects of uh, effects of. UFOs on humans, which is really sort of the the sort of the great, uh, I guess, most controversial part of the entire UFO topic. Uh, and if you take humans out of the equations and all you have is sensors uh, picking up data, for example, like Project Hestelen in Norway uh, has been doing that for for decades, and there are you know there are multiple different examples of autonomous sensor platforms deployed in various places around North America. If, if that's all you have, 
um, and you have no humans at all in the equation, uh, you can get a lot of pretty good data uh, regarding, you know, UFO performance, um, acceleration and right angle turns and luminosity and, power, you know, you might even be able to extrapolate to power generation. So the book that we published uh, recently came out, I think, early October um, is all about the, uh, the, the performance characteristics about, uh, of UFOs. The previous book that we had published over two years ago, Skinwalkers of the Pentagon, was, you know, it was supposed to be a balanced book uh, on both the effects on humans and on the on the uh, the characteristics and performance of UFOs, but you know the whole focus of Skinwalkers of the Pentagon in terms of reaction was all about the sort of the strange effects that OSAP investigated, which by the way were only a tiny minority of the cases that we investigated. But you know there was a tremendous sort of kick kickback and feedback on that small minority of ca cases. That blew it out of proportion. So, you know, we think that the uh, initial revelations book is basically balancing the equation. You know, you've got a sort of something very, very top heavy in terms of uh, focus on human effects and skinwalkers of the Pentagon. And then to balance that out, you've got a, um, a pretty sort of um, in-depth description of the various programs that were conducted at the during the OSAP period, which was 2008 to 2010, on the physics uh, or, or on the UFO performance with a view to eventually sort of getting to grips with the physics and then further down the road engineering. And that's sort of, that's always been the bottom line uh, regarding the OSAP program. It's interesting you say that. The Skinwalkers at the Pentagon book, like you say, did get uh, a reaction from a vocal minority, shall we say, on social media particularly, as tends to be the case. A lot right. of focus on werewolves and dino beavers. Dino beavers is always the big one, isn't it? Um, and like you say, that's a small part of the book. Is that something, if you could go back and remove, you would? Or do you stand by that that's something that's worth reporting because no, you know what we stand, happened? We absolutely stand by it because, um, you know, if you don't follow the data and accumulate the data and you start sort of uh, cherry picking what you want to report what versus what you want to put in the garbage, then you're on a real slippery slope. And, you know, the whole thing then becomes it's not an exercise in science. It's an exercise in something else. So unless you have the, the ability to follow the data and report the data, um, then, you know, I, I, I think you're wasting your time because the UFO phenomenon has been around, you know, we, we know from uh, Jacques Vallée's work for around centuries. But, you know, realistically, if you look at the UFO phenomenon, a lot of people take the convenience of Kenneth Arnold's sightings in June of 1947 as being the, the start of this sort of engagement with global media with respect to the UFO phenomenon. That's usually taken as the start. But I mean, from then all the way through to, to now, um, there's been a lot of different attempts to study the UFO phenomenon. And, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of people who have ignored the effects on humans, um, you know, end up getting a very distorted data set. 
and uh, you know people like Jacques Vallée and uh, you mentioned Jeffrey Kripal at the very beginning of this. I mean, Jeffrey Kripal is a very, very big pro- proponent on reporting out the different aspects of um, not only effects on uh, of UFOs on humans, uh, but also on, on UFO performance, because, you know, it's kind of like you've got to have the whole picture in order to start interpreting it. Otherwise, you're you're completely lost in a fog of sort of uncertainty. Uh, for any folks listening, Jeffrey Kripal, I've just interviewed, I mean, behind the scenes recorded this several hours ago with Jeffrey. This is coming out a few weeks after, as with Jeff's. Um, but yeah, Jeff was a very interesting conversation looking at the history, the religion, the how that ties in together, those conversations, and very much that you mentioned piecing bits of the puzzle together in that bigger picture. That right. He says it's right now it's that's still a very fuzzy picture and no one really knows truly what this is. Um, you look at skinwalkers at the skinwalkers at the Pentagon. The the headline grabbers from that, right or wrong, was the the kind of dino beaver stuff, werewolves. Some of us found some of the cases very very interesting. Obviously, there was the intelligence officer who had the orb pass through his shoulders and come out the other side. A lot of really interesting effects talked about the the nuts and bolts element of this book, initial revelations. Uh, the headline grabber, no doubt, was James Lekatsky, uh, and his chapter nine mention of the US government having a retrieved non-human craft that they were able to open up and go inside it after some problems. Is that something you thought when you put that in there, that'll be the thing people take away from this? Are you surprised at that? Yes, we well, we were not surprised, but you know, the reason that um that that, that particular um description went in there is because you know, if you look through the sort of the archives of UFOs, you know, you see you see various sort of snippets of information that do sort of pertain to a very very intensive high-level uh program that the United States government has been involved with for decades, you know, and I'm talking about sort of testimony from people like going all the way back to sort of Robert Sarbarker, um, you know, Wilbur Smith, General Arthur Exxon back, you know, back when who, who gave out snippets of information regarding, um, you know, these, these sort of recovered, uh, recovered material from, from these objects. And then, you know, there's a lot of the New York Times did a really interesting article uh, uh, by Eric Davis, uh, mm. in which Eric Davis was was uh, was featured. And then, you know, we had Dave, the David Grush testimony on uh, on on Capitol Hill there during uh, I think it was July of this year. Yeah. Um, so and then, you know, uh, one of the people in the article describing David Grush is Carl Nell, uh, who is also, you know, a very sort of strong uh, proponent in terms of backing uh, David Grush up. So you've got these sort of data data points that are all saying the same thing. And, you know, the Likatsky revelation, if you want to use that word, is another data point in a pretty large tapestry that is internally consistent. So, I mean, you know, people will will see that as another data point. We keep hearing, and you know, we actually do know that a lot of people have testified 
to uh, various committees, both the Senate Armed Services Committee and uh, congressional committees uh, on this topic. So there will be more information coming out of the future. So from the perspective of this book, we felt, and and, uh, Jim Likaski also felt that it was definitely, um, you know, plausible and consistent to add another data point into this collection that is sort of evolving into a tapestry that, as I said, is pretty internally consistent. The conversations we're starting to hear now, you mentioned David Grush, the the number reported is 40 plus other whistleblowers have come forward, like you say, to speak to various committees under oath, classified settings and whatnot. Are those types of conversations being had, you know, and what James Lekatsky is mentioning, recovered craft being retrieved and opened up, were you exposed to those kind of conversations back in your OSAP days? And is that stuff that's coming out now that you're very much either not surprised about or you expected to come out? I'm not surprised. Um, I was exposed to multiple conversations of that ilk back in uh, during the OSAP days and, and after the OSAP program. Um, but, you know, as part of the, uh, of the TSSCI clearances, I did sign documentation not to give out any details. And, you know, I think George mentioned to me that he had talked a lot to you about um, this whole idea of um, the, the DOPSER organization that will essentially draw a line in the sand over what is published. And if you try to go beyond what is uh, published uh, under the auspices of Dopser, then, you know, sometimes action can be taken. So, you know, there's a great reluctance on the part of myself and Jim Likaski and uh, others not to go beyond these lines, but also, you know, uh, I think Likaski felt that providing that data point as part of this multitude of data points that are starting to emerge is a very worthwhile exercise because it is supportive, it is corroborative, and you know it is going down that same path um, that is all leading to the same you know endpoint. Whether or not that endpoint actually happens um, is really up in the air. Um, but it, there's a lot of data that is coming forward that is very consistent, and it's coming from different people, different sources. So usually when you triangulate that sort of information, uh, that all sort of is consistent, then that provides a stronger uh, you know, basis on which to form, form interpretations. I, I appreciate and respect, and I've said ad nauseum on the podcast, and listeners will know this. If someone signed an NDA or has some kind of top secret clearance, there are very good reasons why they don't just come out and tell everyone for the good of the UFO community who on Twitter or Instagram or whatever it might be, might demand Com Keller comes out and gives us all the juicy details that he knows and to hell with it. He can go to jail, but he can hold his head high and uh, his family can miss him from a distance, essentially. Um, I know that tends to be the common thing, but I wonder, have you been approached to either testify yourself or would you testify yourself if asked? Um, the answer to all of the above is yes, um, and but it would really depend on um, what, is the, what is the context and also what is the environment. Right now, I don't see the environment as being 
particularly permissive. I know for a fact, I've talked to people who have testified, um, you know, uh, both, uh, both to the uh, various congressional committees, Senate and, and, and Congress, as well as uh, AARO. Um, and, you know, the question, question there is, what is being done with that information? How effective is that information being followed up? Um, and or is the information is just kind of put in a drawer somewhere and sort of people have this sort of version of, uh, to use that off quoted phrase, ontological shock. Um, you know, this is something I don't want to deal with. This is something that is going to affect my career if I sort of move this forward. And so there's a lot of hesitancy, I think, in terms of um, receiving that information. Uh, because there is, there are no clear guidelines. Um, there's a lot of sort of uh, confusion right now on Capitol Hill regarding even a simple process like getting a um, a briefing in a skiff. I mean, that's a very very simple process, but it's being rendered incredibly complex because there's so much confusion about you know, do these people have a need to know? Um, what what is the reason for briefing various Congress people on these kinds of topics and what is going to be done with that information? So I think there's a lot of confusion and I would look at, you know, clearing up some of that confusion before sort of going ahead, because I know for an absolute fact that a lot of people have gone and over the, over quite a period of time have testified and that information is just sort of in a vacuum now. I mean, nothing really concrete is being done with it. And in terms of follow-up, you know, there's a difference between following something up with a sense of purpose versus going through the motions, you know, and various people we know um, have given enormous amount of detail, both on Capitol Hill and also briefing uh, to Arrow. Um, and, you know, there's enough detail to actually follow up. And following up doesn't just kind of make mean just making a phone call and accepting what that other person on the phone gives you. And then, okay, well, case closed. I think that's an interesting point because many people, common perception is that as long as a whistleblower circumvents Arrow and goes round to some other committee, then that's a great thing. But like you say, there's no surefire thing that they're going to follow it up or follow it up in a meaningful way. And you're quite right that as we record this, I'll just say it's the 2nd of December. The UAP Disclosure Act is very much up in the air. Politicians getting involved in this subject is something many folks have wanted for some time. But I think it's just muddied the waters even more. And we're seeing more of that compartmentalization and lack of understanding of government coming out on a daily basis. Um, and that's just not even just on social media. Are you surprised that's happening? Well, no, I'm not surprised because I, I think, you know, the, the, the sort of regulations about the national security, um, you know, requirements, unless you go through the whole process and you've got the proper briefings, um, tend to be very confusing. And, and this whole concept of need to know uh, which is a sort of a, an entry point in terms of briefing into various programs, uh, some of which are, you know, highly classified. 
um, need to know it, it, it is, is a very strong indicator of whether or not somebody is actually going to get a briefing. And, you know, if there's a perception that there is no need to know in briefing Congress person X or Congresswoman Y, um, you know, um, that's not going to happen. And those people are going to get very frustrated. But um, the, 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 the national security structure and apparatus has been in place for decades. And it's not a mystery. But, you know, people seem to think that they can walk into a skiff and get briefed on waived unacknowledged special access programs. Mm. I, I personally think there's a lot of theater going on right now on Capitol Hill. And, you know, there's uh, whether or not that actually will produce any actionable information is another thing. But I'm pretty skeptical. I think there's been uh, sort of the beginnings of a pushback from within the intelligence community regarding this sort of okay, let's go into a skiff and brief all these Congress people. I mean, that's not going to happen realistically. Um, and, and if it does happen, it's probably not going to be a particularly comprehensive briefing. What impact do books like Skinwalkers at the Pentagon and Initial Revelations and even books that are currently undergoing review, like Lou Elizondo's book, which is much anticipated, what kind of impact can that have on this whole process that's going on just now? Well, you know, we've had, for example, we've had a good, really good feedback from a uh, back channel from people associated with uh, AARO, for example, that both uh, many of whom have read both Skinwalkers at the Pentagon and also Initial Revelations. And, you know, the feedback has been very positive that, you know, there's um, if you look at sort of page 10 or 11 on the uh, on Initial Revelations, you'll see a table of sort of where, where there's various things defined, like, you know, whether or not the AARO had a science plan um, and whether OSAP had a science plan. Um, did it have the capacity for field investigations? Um, does it have comprehensive data, the, the ability to put together a comprehensive database? There are sort of 10 separate criteria in this table in our book in which the arrow sort of basics are, are compared pretty precisely with the OSAP program um, procedures and logistics. And, you know, there's over a 90% overlap between the ARO um, punch list and the OSAP punch list. So, you know, uh, I think people at ARO read these books um, and they, you know, I think they appreciated that OSAP was actually a really good template um, for the formation of, of a UFO program. You know, the, the, I, I guess the biggest sort of difference between OSAP and the, um, and the ARO uh, uh, programs would be OSAP did have a, uh, an overt arm that was looking into consciousness studies and what, what, you know, what that actually entailed um, there were sort of uh, small pilot programs on remote viewing, for example. Um, I'm, we're not aware of anything uh, comparable at, at ARO, for example. Um, so there are small discrepancies like that. <clears throat> but in general, I think that the overlap between uh, ARO um, punch list at, that we know and, uh, and the OSAP punch list 
are very, very similar. And, um, you know, I, I guess the, the biggest difference between what Arrow has uh, uh, available to it is the long range data and long and classified sensors. OSAP were, were, were looking to acquire that capability, but the program was shut down after 27 months and that capability never manifested, but it was definitely on the wish list of OSAP. It is on the execution phase of uh, AARO. So they do have, you know, they do have access to uh, long range radar and, and classified sensor data. And that's a very useful characteristic to have. And, you know, also both programs were focused on this question, whether or not, um, you know, UFOs constitute a threat to national security. Do they, do they have threat? You know, is there, is there threat potential in the UFO uh, topic? You talked about previously information going to the right channels, but the way it was handled, me- rendering that information meaningless or that testimony meaningless, is it fair to say that's the way Arrow has been perceived under the guise of Sean Kirkpatrick? Because there's not been many folks been particularly positive about how their information has been handled and indeed what's been done with it. Yeah, I've, I've heard the same dissatisfaction that you're just describing uh, from people who have testified to Aro, and it may be just a, a case of, you know, um, people sitting on this information until um, until there's a sort of a window of opportunity to pursue it. But you know, we do know that uh, briefings have been given to Aro months and months and months ago, and there has been absolutely no follow up or follow through, um, even sort of processing the information that was given. Um, it's been very, very slow. So uh, I've, we've heard the same information as what you're describing. It sounds to me like getting a 10-part tell-all with Christopher Mellon and could be the most revelatory podcast in the history of UFOs, but I don't release it. So that's all very well. I've heard the information, but it goes nowhere. So no one else finds it out. And that's right. been the frustration. We've got a changing of the guard at Arrow and hopefully there can still be some kind of impact. But that's an organization that's left a bad taste in the mouths of a lot of folks. Um, I'd love to know, though, you mentioned, obviously, the the headline grabbers in the book and the purpose of the book. Is there anything you feel that's gone under the radar with initial revelations that you feel people either haven't picked up on or you thought would be more of a talking point? Um, well, I think the main sort of purpose or the, the sort of the front and center part of initial revelations is all about project physics, you know, and project physics was this um, attempt on the part of OSAP uh, to solicit information um, from a lot of the subject matter experts that are out there um, on things like lift uh, propulsion, advanced propulsion uh, topics, um, even even going as far as sort of uh, faster than light travel. Um, so the, uh, the idea of Project Physics was to project out uh, 40 years from, you know, 2008, 2009. Um, so projecting out and, uh, and, and getting the best and the brightest to put this into a series of white papers that would be sort of of tremendous use to various arms of the government in terms of planning future. But secondarily, it would form this incredibly 
uh, comprehensive baseline uh, of what future technology would look like in the aerospace sector, and then it would be able to match it against the uh, the UFO performance. So, you know, hopefully the intent was for the delta between the um, the UFO performance as, you know, as being reported all over the map uh, to the OSAP program versus what these projections of advanced aerospace technology would look like uh, 40 years in the future. And I guess, you know, some of the feedback that we've got so far is that project, the project physics papers are sort of, uh, they're, they're being dismissed uh, they're being derided. They're being a, they're being sort of uh, essentially ignored. Uh, I guess that that part has has surprised me because we put in deliberately put this book together in order to sort of give out comprehensive uh, layperson summaries of the thirty eight white papers that were delivered uh, to OSAP, which OSAP in turn delivered to the Defense Intelligence Agency. The Defense Intelligence Agency, in turn, put those up into onto JWIX, onto a very, very sort of accessible um, part of JWIX, where you know organizations such as DARPA that are into advanced technology or other parts of the Pentagon, um, all the way through uh, various intelligence agencies, United States Air Force, United States Navy. All of these organizations had access to those papers, and the feedback uh, when these were in, on the classified network was tremendously positive. Um, the feedback, in contrast, you know, once these went went public and they're now on the Defense Intelligence Agency website, the feedback was exactly the opposite. It was very negative, and you know, a lot of hostility, a lot of dismissive. This stuff is all just sort of uh, vanilla, bogus, sort of. Uh, uh, dreaming up stuff, uh, but actually the technical parts of the uh, of the thirty eight papers were very well received behind closed doors. Uh, but you know the purpose of the book was to basically create a series of easily understandable uh, summaries of these papers to make the argument that the the project physics was actually a very useful um, exercise in um, reducing this, the, you know, what, what we all know as um, the, the large gap between what we know and what we can do in terms of engineering and physics versus what we observe uh, with the, uh, the characteristics of UFO performance. Why do you think that disparity of the initial reception to, to the public reception? Uh, it's something that um, I guess... It goes back to what George Knapp would call UFO world, you know, the whole sort of Twitterverse and the Reddit community. Um, there's a tendency to sort of engage in one-upmanship in terms of being the most hostile or the most sort of uh, dismissive. And I, I think it's kind of a self, uh, it's a self-licking ice cream, really. I mean, it's, it's just a, a sort of an exercise. I like in that. I like that. Yeah. I like that phrase. I'm going to use that in the future. A self licking ice cream. Okay. It's like, that's the new self-fulfilling prophecy. I like it. Um, do you think some of that could be to do with, not rightly or wrongly here at all, Colm, but who releases the information, i.e. if Chris Mellon releases something and 
you release something and Jeremy Corbell release something and Lou Elizondo releases something, there can be four different reactions just because of who released it. I, I think that's a fair point, yeah. Um, you know, all the way back in, in um, you know, 2017, before the New York Times broke, uh, broke the article, I think there was a lot of discussion um, because some of the people that were involved in the initial releases uh, were aware that what OSAP did was, in terms of following the data, did lead down some controversial paths. And so, yeah, I mean, there, 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 there has been a sort of a protection on the on the path on the part of a lot of different people who were involved in releasing that information to be very careful about what kinds of information were released. So, um, yeah, I, I I can see that there that the source of the information and how it's released plays a great part in um, you know stimulating various frenzies on um, on Twitter and uh, and Reddit and all, all social media in general. Yeah. Um, question I want to ask you that I did ask George when I spoke to him recently and he said, speak to Colm, um, was pretty much word for word. So on uh, the James Iandoli podcast, Engaging the Phenomenon, I highly recommend folks go and check that out. Uh, you were on that with George and you discussed perception management during experiences or sightings. Um, you mentioned that many witnesses had seen a light at Skinwalker Ridge and that those with advanced night vision binoculars could make out various shapes, and those differed from person to person. One hypothesis mentioned was that the people were meant to see different shapes, and is there anything to suggest that the reason people see different things from the same experiences could potentially be to do with the people themselves? That's absolutely um, a possibility. You know, the... Uh, we know that eyewitness testimony in general is uh, colored by expectations and, you know, conditioning and all of that. So, but there's also this idea that uh, the UFO phenomenon also um, can influence um, different eyewitness perceptions. I know that Jacques Vallée and others have actually written extensively about this whole thing. And um, we thought that the um, the incident on Skinwalker Ranch was a good example of that. But, you know, there are other possibilities for sure. And, you know, there is a sort of a, a membrane um, between um, what people actually uh, see versus what they expect to see. And, and, you know, there's a lot of room for manipulation within that whole thing. Um, that is very easy to, um, if, if, if you're looking at, at manipulating, there is a lot that the human perception uh, gives you in terms of ease of manipulation. And, you know, Jacques Vallée has sort of uh, written extensively about this whole thing where, um, you know, two people are, they come up upon a, a UFO on the side of the road and one person walks away with a memory of a, of a car crash. And the other person uh, walks away with a memory of a uh, of a, a UFO on the side of the road. Uh, other other people have have reported the same thing, where there are dramatically different uh, versions of uh, realities, quote unquote, uh, reported by two people who are in the same car looking at ostensibly the same thing. Um, and you know that's an example of uh, what we would 
we would call perception, manipulation of perception. But, you know, like you say, human psychology is tremendously complex and going all the way up there, um, you know, um, it really depends. I think there's a sort of a, a continuum that can be influenced. I know in my own sighting I've talked about, I was 10, 11, 12 years old. There was five of us on object and wasn't up in the sky. It was, I've said before, column. it's like a Ferris wheel on its side, but at a kind of 30, 40 degree angle, spinning incredibly fast, lots of lights. And it was in a very built up area in Glasgow when I was younger. Um, hundreds of people would have seen it, given it was in a very suburban area. The other four folks who I was with, including my mum, if I ask them now what was it they saw, they remember seeing something, but none of them can remember what it was. I remember very clearly what I saw, and it always stuck with me. And I always find that curious that given it was something so spectacular, the other four who don't have an interest in the subject whatsoever just remember seeing something, and that was it. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good example of, I think, what we're, we're talking about is um, it, it gets very, very blurred, especially when whatever this is, is outside, um, outside anything that people have seen before. I mean, the uh, consciousness tends to try to fill in the blanks and sort of join a whole bunch of dots that some, sometimes are inappropriate to, to join. Yeah. Um, I'd love to just get your, your thoughts on a few listener questions um, as we kind of head on to the last part here, Colm. Um, a question from Luigi, which is sort of just on what we're talking about here. At the Rice presentation, uh, you were shown a few interesting slides and Luigi asked, could you expand a bit more on the mimicry aspects of the UFO phenomenon as they pertain, for example, uh, the witnesses of the man in black, black helicopters and triangular, triangular UAP? Yeah, um, that's going back to the Rice University. Uh, was part of the Jeffrey Kripal's, um the Archives of the Impossible conference that happened. I think it was May or May of this year, April maybe. Um, but yeah, I think the slide uh, tried to summarize what what we what some of us call the bidirectional mimicry hypothesis, and that is that there are the UFO phenomenon in general has probably at least two levels of deception associated with it. And um, the first level of deception would be deception from the United States government that is tasked with uh, essentially deception and concealment of, of programs that pertain to UFOs. I mean, that's part of their job is to, um, is to create deception, concealment, and um, you know distractions. So we we had a very interesting conversation with kind of the maestro of deception and concealment, the head of uh, Air Force Office of Special Investigations, Colonel Barry Hennessy. Um, we interviewed him in a cafe outside the Pentagon for about four hours, and you know the purpose of our interview was to talk about some of these so-called North, Northern Tier sightings. And that was the set of sightings that, um, that were all over uh, the, the Air Force bases that go right across the 49th parallel that have to do with all of the missile launch facilities on this side of the border with Canada that are, that are ready to respond to incoming 
Soviet and now Russian missiles coming over the North Pole. So um, all of these missile uh, bases, Air Force bases, were in a high state of readiness, you know, and um, during the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of reports of intrusions by UFOs, unidentified flying objects, onto these Air Force bases. And so we point blank asked Barry Hennessy um, what was going on there. And he told us, you know, 50% of what was um, what was documented in these sightings were ours, and 50% we had no idea of. But the, the point is, Barry Hennessy was at pains to explain that the UFO phenomenon was a very convenient uh, cover under which to hide a lot of advanced ter- uh, technology programs, advanced, you know, special access programs that were advanced technology that the Air Force did not want the public to know about. So anytime something was flying, for example, there's a famous case in, uh, in northern New Mexico in which one of these prototypes crashed. There was a, uh, a lot of... Um, you know, a lot of rumor and innuendo about a crashed UFO in the area um, that was put out deliberately in order to conceal the fact that this was a, an advanced prototype from a, a special access program that the United States Air Force was running. That's an example of the sort of level of deception that uh, the United States government routinely perpetrates on the on the United States public. It's, it's part of their job, it's part of the Air Force Office of uh, Special Investigations job uh, to deceive and conceal um, and all of that. So that's one level of the of the deception. The second level is um, during the NIDS program, the National Institute for Discovery Science program, back between two, 1996 and 2004, NIDS was in the middle of this, what can only be called a UFO wave of these black triangle sightings. And that was these low-flying uh, football field size, silent, extremely brightly lit objects that would, you know, routinely fly over crowded neighborhoods, fly down interstate highways at extraordinarily low altitudes. I mean, when I say low altitude, I'm not talking about a thousand feet. I'm talking about treetop level, you know, 60 feet, 70 feet, 100 feet. I mean, ridiculously dangerous and we started investigating those things. And the first thing we thought of was these are obviously Air Force programs. And we investigated the first 10 under that auspices. But by the time we reached 100 separate cases that we had investigated all over the United States that were essentially identical, um, that the same thing was happening all the time, extremely low, extremely brightly lit, very large, very silent. And, you know, using, I mean, talk about earth safety violations. Those pilots we postulated had to be on some really heavy drugs or something uh, to, to warrant these violations. Eventually, the data became so overwhelming that one of the hypotheses we put out was that this phenomenon was actually mimicking um, Air Force special access programs. So, you know, there's a level of deception being per- perpetrated by the phenomenon. So the bi-directional mimicry hypothesis is basically that there are two levels of, of deception. Every time a UFO 
you know, within reason, every time a UFO uh, phenomenon or event is being uh, investigated, um, you're looking at that event through two separate lenses of deception. And so, you know, from a scientific perspective, I don't know of any other scientific sort of discipline where you've got to go through two levels of deception before you actually start doing an experiment. I mean, trying to do a controlled experiment when, you know, there are two different actors trying to actively conceal and deceive uh, regarding the data that you're, you're trying to examine. I mean, that is the reason why there's been very little, um, I guess, progress made in UFO in general in the UFO field um, going back multiple decades. Interesting answer. Uh, thank you, Luigi. I know, Luigi, you sent in several questions, but just time for the one. Um, a question from Newman, and Newman asks, was OSAP able to give any attempt at explanations for the peculiar forms of motion that have been observed by UAPs, specifically the zigzag movement of the tic-tac and the commonly reported wobbling or fallen leaves motions that disc-shaped craft are reported to perform? Well, that was obviously, that was part of the agenda for, for OSAP. And I, I've said this on many, many occasions before, is that the, uh, the 27 months of OSAP was a truncated timeframe. The program originally was going to go five years plus. Um, and our, a lot of the people who were involved in setting up the program were hoping it would go somewhere between five to 10 years and at that stage, a lot of these questions could have been answered. But, you know, the whole idea of starting from scratch, getting um, getting top secret uh, clearance facilities orchestrated, um, hiring 50 people, full-time people, getting those, those 50 people security clearances, and then going into the training process and then deploying all of these people out in the field boots on the ground all over North America to collect data and then databasing all the, all of that data. I mean, that's where we ran into the limitations of where time was not on our side. By the end of the 27 month program, you know, the, uh, I think OSAP was a really well-oiled machine, but in terms of um, getting the database uh, completely populated, uh, that was a real success story. But the next, Part of doing that would be to analyze what's in the database. And we never got down to the nuts and bolts um, analysis because we ran out of time. The program was shut down after 27 months of operation. So, you know, uh, Newman has a very good question, but um, we were not able to, uh, to join those dots because we ran out of time. Adrian asks, if Colm and his co-authors had written Initial Revelations three years ago, would they have been clear to publish it? And if not, who's responsible for the muzzle coming off now? I believe um, if we had written Initial Revelations three years ago, um, I think it, it, it would have been mostly accepted through, uh, through Dopser because, you know, I think Dobser really focuses through a pretty narrow lens, and that is whether or not the information in a particular book is violating national security regulations. 
and and is actually reporting out uh, aspects of sources and methods or aspects of classified programs. Um, if that is the case, uh, Dopser will drop the hammer and will remove stuff. I mean, in Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, for example, we submitted Skinwalkers at the Pentagon to Dopser, um, and they took out a lot of particular details about people's names, um, offices, particular locations, um, people who were uh, serving active duty, military. Uh, they insisted we change all of that stuff to protect the, uh, the information. Um, but I, I think the simple answer to your question would be um, what we actually put out in um, initial revelations, probably the majority would have been accepted three years ago. And I suppose some kind of a follow-up from Aaron. Aaron asks, at what point would seeing evidence not compromise national security? For example, the biological evidence doesn't reveal any tech that big aerospace our government doesn't want us to see, and it would validate much of the conspiracy. Well, that's arguable. You know, biological tissue, um, you know, especially biological tissue of unknown origin may have... Um, unknown infectious entities associated with it, uh, which which itself would be extremely classified if there were, I, I'm just pulling an example out of the air here, but if there were sort of viruses or, and or other infectious entities associated with biological tissue, a lot of that data would have to be very, very carefully scrutinized over a long period of time before it would be released to the public because, again, you know, it would have national security implications, especially, um, you know, depending on the level of infectiousness. That's just one example, you know, in terms of um, there is a lot of intellectual property associated with biological analysis. I mean, there are multiple law firms all around the world that are making extraordinary amounts of money defending uh, United States patents and global patents based on biological uh, attributes. Um, last couple of questions from Tree of Life. There are purportedly many hot spots like Skinwalker Ranch, yet they have not been studied with scientific rigor. In what ways could a comparative study between sites be useful? And is the barrier to, stud is the barrier to studying more sites purely financial? I think that's a very good question. Um, I know that during the National Institute for Discovery Science, um, we did attempt to go beyond Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, we, we moved into uh, an area on the Icarilla Apache Reservation in Dulce, New Mexico, um, that happened to have um, a lot of very similar activity that was happening on Skinwalker Ranch. And that area was near uh, Mount Archuleta in uh, in northern New Mexico, um, we found a, a tremendous correlation between uh, quote unquote nuts on bolts UFO activity, uh, unusual creatures, um, a lot of paranormal so called paranormal effects were reported. Um, we also, uh, with the help of Captain Keith Wolverton, um, studied a another hotspot that happened to be adjacent to Great Falls, in Great Falls, Montana, Malmstrom Air Force Base, that had a tremendous level of nuts and bolts UFOs that were actually intruding 
over the airspace of, uh, of Malstrom Air Force Base, while all of the small villages that were around Malstrom Air Force Base also had everything from Bigfoot sightings to cattle mutilations to paranormal effects, um, all of these strange creatures being seen. I mean, it was like, to quote George Knapp's expression, a paranormal Disneyland up around Great Falls, Montana. Um, same thing. So there are some of the hotspots. We spent some time in San Luis Valley in Colorado. I know Chris O'Brien has written several really good books on um, the absolute plethora of disparate um, phenomena that happen in, happen in San, Lu San Luis Valley. I don't know if you're familiar with Stan Gordon, who's done a tremendous amount of investigation of the same kind of thing, UFO activity in, in parallel with a lot of creature activity, uh, creature sightings in Pennsylvania. Uh, so dotted around the United States and in Europe, um, there are multiple different um, examples of these hotspots. Even in the UK, you know, the so-called uh, Rendlesham Forest cases, uh, we, we spent some time investigating, um, you know, some of the witnesses. And we were told that that area around Rendlesham Forest um, had a long legacy of not only UFO activity, but a lot of weird uh, haunting-like activity. Um, there was, you know, there was a, a famous um, ghost, quote unquote, that used to walk down one of the runways, um, you know, in, in uh, RAF Bentwaters. Um, but so the, the correlations are very strong, but it's a question, I think, as your questioner said, it's a lot of resources that have to be deployed in order to closely investigate those. I mean, Skinwalker Ranch is unique because beginning in 1994 all the way to 2023, there have been intensive research programs located on a 500-acre property. Um, it, that's pretty unique. Um, uh, the, only, the only sort of comparable area would be either Project Hestelen in Norway, which is mostly autonomous uh, surveillance, or the area in Pennsylvania that Stan Gordon has been uh, investigating for close to 60 years. Uh, final question to sum, sum up then and let you go, Colm, because I know you're a busy man. It's actually one of Luigi's, but I'm going to give him it because I would have asked very similar anyway. Uh, do you have a release schedule for your next books and is Project Consciousness going to be included? Very good question. Well, I know that um, uh, Jim Likatsky is sort of the front and center in terms of uh, looking at that in terms of schedule, but uh, we do have an interest in reporting out on uh, getting deeper into project consciousness um, in the future, whether or not it's going to be um, this uh, the next book uh, that comes from uh, Jim Likatsky and our collaboration or further down the road. But um, fundamentally, there is a very, very strong um, relationship between the UFO phenomenon and human consciousness. And, you know, eventually that has to be really front and center of the next UFO program. And we would argue strongly, again, based on the book, Initial Revelations, we would argue strongly that the OSAP template that is already 
you know, shown to be a success is a very viable template for future UFO programs, including Project Consciousness, which, you know, obviously will not be the first project that would be kicked off in a new UFO program, but it could be down the road. That is all for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. Apple and Spotify do make a huge difference to the algorithm. If you're checking the show on YouTube, please don't forget to like and leave a comment on here as well. Any sharing you do is very much appreciated on any social media platform. And finally, you can listen to shows ad-free and sponsor-free in their glorious full versions by subscribing for less than the price of a coffee on Apple, Spotify, just search That UFO Podcast Premium. YouTube, you can sign up and be a member or you can do that through patreon.com. Thank you very much for listening, folks. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Folk. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window and when I shut out the screen, he made it an issue.